Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, teaching pastor Chad Brugman wraps up the series titled, Jonah, the Story of a Runaway. You guys doing good today? What am I working with? Talk to me here. All right. All right. I like it. I've had so much coffee today and I talked to Jesus early this morning, so I'm feeling uh, so good. We are going to jump right into this because we've got a lot to talk about today as we wrap up the series, Jonah chapter four. I have the privilege uh, and uh, the responsibility of going through Jonah chapter four today. The best way I think I could possibly set up what's happening in Jonah chapter four, though, is to start in the gospels with uh, Jesus. And so we're going to actually start to get to Jonah four. We're going to start in Luke chapter 18. Um, right before we read that, though, I'll set this up. I, I preached from Luke 18 six years ago, and I, I didn't know I was going to do it within 12 hours of preaching it. I was getting on a plane uh, to go with some friends and a group of people down to Honduras to do some missions work with an organization that I love and partner with. And when I was on the plane flying from Denver to Houston to Houston to Honduras, uh, the leader of the organization looked at me and said, hey, you're, you're our pastor on this trip. And I was like, cool, look forward to it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a pastor. He goes, so I'm gonna need you to preach. And I go, what? <laughs> pastor still needs to prepare, you know what I'm saying? I go, when am I preaching? He's like, when we get off the plane. I go, you gotta be kidding me, Riley. What are you doing to me, you know? And so I'm spending my whole time on the plane just trying to like pray and be like, God, I haven't talked to you. I don't know what. And I'm like, where am I preaching? And he's like, uh, you're preaching in a prison. And I'm like, I'm sorry, speaking to my good ear, I'm preaching where? He goes, you're preaching in a prison. I go, okay, tell me more. What's it like? He goes, well, uh, if you go to Netflix real quick, you can go to this documentary called The World's Most Dangerous Prisons. And it's one of the first ones on there. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Like me, I'm going to go. And he's like, yeah, you got to do it. You're the preacher. You, you know what you're doing. And I was just like, okay, gospel's good news. Here we go. And so I'm just praying so fervently on the plane and I'm starting to look up stuff. And I'm like, God, I have no clue. This is, I'm not good with last minute stuff. And so I finally landed and I just decided, okay, Luke 18, I'm going, I'm going to Luke 18. And so we get to this prison and I kid you not, you get there and there's a bunch of police officers out front uh, with these huge machine guns and you have to give them your passport and you have to sign a waiver that says they're not responsible for anything that happens in there. So I'm already freaking out. And then I'm told there's no police officers or security guards that are actually in the prison. They're all the guys that were out front. This prison, what, part of what makes it one of the world's most dangerous prisons is it is self-governed. And there are two rival gangs in Honduras, if you don't know this. One of them, the, the, the biggest gang in Honduras, and it really actually carries quite a bit of clout and power in other countries as well uh, for drugs and different reasons, but it's called the 18th Street Gang. And there's this huge wall, it's probably 30 feet high of cement in between the two sides. And I'm like, what's this wall here for? And I was like, because we can't put these two gangs in the same corridor or they'll all just be dead. In fact, they said yesterday, someone threw a grenade over this wall onto this wall. And I'm just literally going, are you kidding me right now? Like, and I'm here and I'm, I'm supposed to preach to these hardened criminals, but I just started talking myself up and I started praying to God and I started reminding myself that we really do. Like, you know, I say it to you guys all the time, but it's a pretty safe place to say it. I go, we got the best news on planet earth, right? Well, I was about to believe, see how much I actually believe that. And so I went in there and you don't understand how important number 18 is to these guys. I don't ensure the inception or the reason they're called the 18th street gang. But as I started to talk to them and I just, I was just, just a fish out of water, man. And I was so nervous. I'm like, God, how do I relate to them? As I started, I said, oh, if you have Bibles, open up your Bibles 
to Luke 18. And I said 18 and everyone's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is easy. Talk back to me more than you guys do. And I had no clue at the time that, that you just say the, the number 18 and they get all excited because that's their whole life, the 18th Street Gang. I go, we're going to go to Luke 18. Isn't God good though? I'm on a plane. I don't know anything about this. And God led my heart to Luke 18. And so I just did a real simple message called the pastor and the prisoner. And I'm going to read Luke chapter 18 now. This is what it says. This is Jesus. Uh, some Pharisees were asking him about some of the things in his kingdom, not because they cared about it, but because they wanted to trap him. And this was a story he decided to tell these Pharisees. He said to some who were confident in their own righteousness, because we're talking today about the righteousness of Christ versus our own righteousness. He said, to those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, because rest assured for a city, when you are confident in who you are yourself, and your confidence doesn't come wholly and solely based on the goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ, you will by default start to look down on everyone else. You understand that? You'll just start to see everyone else is the problem. Everyone else is the enemy. You're, you're the victor. They're the victims. You're the, you're the hero of the story. They're the villains of the story. They look down on everyone else. So Jesus told them this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Now, when I was preaching to these guys, I stopped and I said, all right, gentlemen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change the word Pharisee for the word pastor because that's what I am. So, so put me into this guy's place. So it's like Chad went to the temple to pray and the other was a tax collector. And I'm like, guys, this tax collector had a huge rap sheet of things he's done wrong. In his culture, he was considered the scum of the earth. He was the most hated person in his community. Some of you guys, because of what you've went through and done to get in here, I told these prisoners, you can relate. So, so we're gonna call the tax collector the prisoner. So we got the pastor and we got the prisoner, right? The Pharisee stood by himself because it's lonely. It's lonely to think you're better than everyone else. It becomes a lonely life to start pitting yourself up against everyone else. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Sorry, that's how I pictured him praying. I'm not like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this prisoner or tax collector. I fast twice a week. He starts going into his personal resume, right? Because he's all about his own righteousness. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now listen to this, but the tax collector, or I said to those gentlemen in that prison, but the prisoner just did this, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said this. I think this might be, if you could just have one prayer for the rest of your life, this might be it right here. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we got the pastor giving his resume, reminding God how awesome he is telling him all the things that he's abstained from, and then he finishes by adding all the amazing, moral, great, righteous things that he uh, has done in his life. And all the tax collector can do is beat his chest, won't even look up to heaven. There's two different postures here, right? One's standing, one's kneeling, and won't even look up to heaven. Two different postures between the pastor and between the prisoner. Listen to what Jesus says, guys. This is so fundamental. This isn't some just nice little story. This is massive massive amounts of theology right here. The implications are huge. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, pointing to the prisoner, not the preacher, this man, it says, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I remember getting to tell these prisoners 
I'm no better than them. I said, I, I don't have your rap sheet. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't uh, raped anyone. I haven't been in part of drug cartels. I think I stole a Jodeci and a Public Enemy CD in high school. I think that's like the biggest, I've, I, I go over the speed limit quite often. I'm not proud of that, but I have a lead foot. I do that. Other than that though, I can't compare. There was one guy I talked to right before I went up to preach that told me he was in for murdering 12 people in a gang fight. Like I can't even compare. And I started to tell these guys, if you compare rap sheets between what you guys have all cumulatively done in here and then some of the best people on planet earth, it wouldn't even compare. But the justification that was received in that moment in this story that Jesus is telling is going by the person with by far the bigger rap sheet. Has no resume of any good, but it's Jesus trying to wake up the church. And in this case, he was trying to wake up the Pharisees to their self-righteousness and goes, there is only one righteousness that saves. There is only one type of righteousness that can truly change and heal a human heart. You can't obey good enough for your heart to change. You can't, in fact, you'll just start getting angry at people who aren't obeying as much as you. You ever do that? I'm just telling on myself, I'm guilty of that. Sometimes there's a certain area in life I just seem to be crushing. I'm doing good and I'm paying prices and I'm putting some blood, sweat, and tears into those areas of my life. And the natural progression of my human fleshly heart, if I'm not careful, is I start to pit myself against the people who aren't paying the prices that I'm paying, who aren't doing the things that I'm not doing, who aren't putting in the work and the time that I'm doing. And I start to look down on them as this false sense of justification about who I am. I start trying to find this, this false sense of confidence in that. And here's the deal, it never works and you end up lonely in the process. So we got the prisoner and the pastor. There's another thing we could do in this story. You could superimpose the Pharisee in Luke 18 for Jonah. You'll see it all over chapter four. And you can superimpose the tax collector for Nineveh in this story. Horrible rap sheet. But we see in Jonah chapter three, what do they do? They cry out for mercy. And so in Jonah four, I have the responsibility to talk to you about, if I'm being honest, it's a subject that's not my favorite. If I had a top 10 things to preach, this wouldn't even be on that list. But I, it's not my job to come up here and preach what I'm excited to preach about. It's my job to come up here and follow where the text takes us, right? And in Jonah chapter four, one of the great anthems is, is this, this sin of Jonah's, this, this broken part of who, Jonah's a great prophet of God. We've picked on him a bit in this, in this series because he, we're not seeing his best moments all the time in this book. But Jonah is a man of God. He's a prophet of God. There's key moments in his life where you can truly tell he has the heart of God. But just like you and me, there's a brokenness to Jonah. And his big area of struggle is what I believe, and I'll say this, I believe it with every ounce of conviction I have, especially the older I get in my faith and I look more and more into my heart, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am convinced of this right here. The single greatest, deepest, darkest, last ill of the human heart to ever go is the sin of self-righteousness. I don't think there is anything that can pit us against God more than the sin of self-righteousness. Look at all of the sins Jesus confronts in people in the gospels. Like let's say the woman caught in adultery, right? That's a big sin. That has big implications. Some of you have done it. Some of you have been on the receiving end of it, right? And you know the implications that come with adultery. Look at the tenderness Jesus treats that woman as he's trying to get her to leave that sin and do it no more. But then look at, the, look at the sternness Jesus has in his wordings with the Pharisees and in their struggles. Because it's not that he loves the woman caught in adultery more than the Pharisees. He loves them all the same. 
but he knows the danger and the depths of of the sin of self-righteousness. Here's why, because of how subtle it is. And because you can cloak our self-righteous acts in all kinds of nobility. And because he knows the human heart is so tempted to wanna put the burden of salvation on ourselves instead of putting the burden of salvation on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus just isn't having it. And this is what happens in Jonah chapter four. Let's read it. Jonah has just preached a message, begrudgingly, by the way. He obeyed God, but he, it took him a belly of a whale and a, and a thunderstorm in a boat and almost dying. And then he not only finally obeys, but he does it, the Bible says, begrudgingly because he doesn't want Nineveh to come to repentance. He doesn't in any way, shape, or form want Nineveh to be in any type of right standing that his people Israel were because they have been enemies now for centuries. You understand that? I get that. He's been trained, like I told you in week one, his his brain was formed from birth to, to, to hear this. Israel good, Ninevites bad, right? Israel victims, Ninevites villains, Right? And, and make no mistake about it, the, the Ninevites had done some awful things, but as we hear in the text, God's saying, they just don't know. They just don't know. You want me to punish them, you want me to judge them, but I can't do that when they just don't know. So Jonah, go tell them the good news. Go tell them a message of repentance. So in chapter three, he obeys, but he's not happy about it. Listen to what, listen to what it says in Jonah chapter four. It says, this change of plans, when God, when God changed plans, for Jonah, got him there, made him preach the message, upset Jonah. He became very angry. Listen why. Jonah complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say, God, before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is Jonah going, I knew if I went and preached repentance, here's what would happen. He, listen, for City, this is why Jonah's mad at God. He goes, this is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful God. <laughs> what a horrible thing, right? He goes, I knew you were a merciful God. And a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. I know you're a God who's eager to turn back from destroying people. And I want them destroyed, God. At least Jonah's honest. But think about that. How self-righteous do you have to get in life to where you're now resenting the mercy of God? As if any of us have anything else to stand on. You understand, we are products Nothing more, nothing less than the absolute, overwhelming, reckless love of God that we just sang about. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it, the line in the song said. Still, you give your love away. Jonah's just as much. The fact that Jonah is breathing is the sovereign mercy of God. And he's lost it in his self-righteous and religious attempts at, at, at being good for God. And so now he's like, I know you're good. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen because he had predicted in chapter three that if you don't turn in 40 days from your ways, God's gonna destroy the city and Jonah's hoping they don't turn. He's like, I'd rather die than them actually repent. And the Lord Lord replied, excuse me, to Jonah. He just asked him a rhetorical question. Is it right for you to be angry about this? And the text shows us as we keep reading, Jonah doesn't answer it. He's probably mulling over it probably getting to be a little convicted that God replied that way. Is it right for you to be angry? Is this, is this your fight to wage or are you just supposed to be obedient and go preach? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city. He made a shelter to sit under it as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Here's where God does what he did with Jonah and the fish. He just gives him another object lesson using nature. 
The Lord God arranged, listen to this, for a leafy plant to grow there. As soon as it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, excuse me, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. That's an act of mercy from God, right? Jonah's being a a baby, let's call it what it is. Jonah's begrudgingly preaching the good news of the God of Israel to people he doesn't like. And when he goes out to the city to wait to see what God does, God's kind enough in the scorching heat to arrange for him this tree that just grows up overnight to give him shade. The Bible says this eased his discomfort and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Aren't you grateful when you receive God's mercy? Aren't you grateful when God gives you tangible help in a moment, right? That's just the natural thing. Well, that's what Jonah's feeling here. But then listen to this. God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away and the sun grew hot. God also arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint. And here we are again. He's back to wanting to die and he wished to die. Jonah says, death is certainly better than living like this, he explained. And then God asked him the same question again. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. But then listen to what God said. The Lord said, oh, so let me get this straight. And I'm adding that. He says, let me get this straight, Jonah. You feel sorry about the plant, that it died. That feels unjust to you. And yet you did nothing to put it there. It's almost like God's going, so, so let me get this straight. You're super passionate about justice for this tree but yet you want judgment and condemnation for something that's actually living and breathing that bears my image, Ninevites. Jonah, you're, you're super pro-life about this tree. Not super pro-life, though, about the Ninevites. Which is it? Are you, are you pro-life or are you not? Because you don't get to pick and choose your categories. It's womb to tomb, baby. But it was easy for him to get super self-righteous and justifiable about the tree because it provided him something. It's a whole other thing, though, when you don't want God to do something for some, some, some people that haven't not only not provided you anything, but they're your enemies, right? And God's trying to show how overwhelmingly good and amazing the grace of God is. He says, you feel sorry about this plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died. And then he goes, but Jonah, listen to me. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the innocent animals. And then he says to Jonah, and the whole, the whole book ends on a question. We don't, Jonah doesn't answer. We don't know what Jonah thinks or feels. I'm guessing, surely he felt super convicted. But he says, Jonah, should I not feel sorry for such a great city? Like This is God for a city trying to wake the human heart up to the dangers of self-righteousness. We can so easily get so comfortable in our tribes and we can get so comfortable in the four walls of our church community because for the most part, other than some, some, some political or, or some fundamental differences about certain things in life, we come in here believing and thinking the, the, the same things about Jesus, right? He's our hope, he's our source, he's our salvation. We, we have this kind of unspoken unity that's in here simply because of Jesus and because of Christianity. So it's easy in here. But then God challenges us, but, but we're not called. We just come in here. This is the locker room, not the football field, right? You know what I'm saying? We come here to regroup. We come here to re-challenge. 
We come here to put some things on paper so that we actually go out to where it matters to play the game. In the real world with real people that don't think like you and don't believe like you and have different faith persuasions than you do and have different ideas about ethics and morals or some people out there you don't like that don't seem to have any ethics or morals at all. There's people out there that have hurt you and that have wounded you. And I don't wanna make light of anything difficult or wrong that's happened to you. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am being reminded of in this text, I told you in week one and I'll say it again, to read the whole story of Jonah properly, you have to read the last verse first because this is ultimately God going, Jonah, I know on paper it doesn't make sense to you in Israel for me to be kind and merciful and offer repentance to Nineveh, but you gotta understand my sovereign heart. It's bigger than your guys' history. And my heart is for I so love the world, including Nineveh, including your enemies, that no one should perish, but that everyone through Jesus could have eternal life. That is the heart of God. And if we're not careful, we can forget that. We can get in our safe, comfortable, tribal environments where, again, we all look pretty much the same and think the same and act the same and vote the same and we can, we can, we can talk the same and, and we can forget that the, that the world just needs Jesus and that God loves the world. Everyone on planet Earth that is breathing is an image bearer of God. You understand that? They bear the image of God. He spoke them into existence. He knit them together in their mother's womb. The one thing Jesus has graciously said he wants us to be a part of in that is bringing them to the next step because it is not enough to just be an image bearer of God. You understand that? It's not enough. The next step is becoming a son and daughter of God. And that happens from being born the second time, not born of a woman, but born in your spirit. This is what salvation is. This is, this is what real righteousness is. Let me, let me explain it this way. I'm gonna, let, let's do this for the, for the sake of today. These two lines right here represent the world we live in. From the book of Genesis till right now and however much longer we have. The, just this space. If this whiteboard is eternity, let's just say this is the space that we just live in right now. And I need a thousand or million whiteboards to, to really represent this space versus eternity. But I got one whiteboard, so stick with me here, right? Look, let's put, let's, let, let's put uh, Nineveh over here. Nineveh, I hope I got that right. We'll put Jonah over here. Let's, let's say that this, is a, this life is a spectrum, because it really is. And this represents good. We'll say Jonah's on good team, Nineveh on bad team. Let, let's bring it into more modern times. Let's be cliched here. We'll put Hitler over here representing just pure, unadulterated evil that humans are capable of. And we'll put, again, cliched Mama Teresa over here. We'll put Mother Teresa, rest in peace, ma'am. Love you, what a life. Mother Teresa's over here, right, just representing just beautiful good. Let's put Ditka over here. Aaron Rodgers over here. I'm just kidding. There's more Bears fans here, so I'm just playing to the crowd. I'm sure Jesus loves Aaron Rodgers. I don't, but Jesus, but we know he loves Dicka. Bears. You guys know what I'm saying. Now, the, the gap, think about this. The gap between Hitler, when it just comes to a life lived, and Mother Teresa, doesn't it just seem magnificent? Come on, when you know both of their stories and both of their histories, and let's be honest, in this, in this small world we live in, 
the gap of evil versus good between him and Mother Teresa is magnificent. And I'm not here to, to condescend to that or to, to make light of that. Something as big as the Holocaust or something as beautiful as what Mother, Part- uh, Mother Teresa did in Calcutta, India. I'm simply saying this. The gap from good to evil, if righteousness is up to us as humans, is only this big in light of what true righteousness is. Again, I would need a thousand other whiteboards to illustrate this, but if you look at the size of this gap and then you look at the distance of the gap between Hitler, Mother Teresa, Jonah, Nineveh, and what Jesus did on the cross, it is completely otherworldly. You understand that? This is the kingdom of heaven. It is so fundamentally, this is why so many people, when Jesus physically came here and started teaching the kingdom, they wanted to put him on a cross. It disrupted everything we as humans have been taught from birth, including it disrupted religion that was supposed to be pure and holy. Because the Pharisees had done what we've done with every other world religion, just turned it into a series of of works. They wouldn't have used the word karma, but that's what they were hoping. If I jump through the Torah hoops good enough, then Yahweh God is supposedly, according to things like Deuteronomy 28 and other things, he's supposed to bless me big time. And so it became a big game for the Israelites by first century of just who can obey the best. And this is why the Pharisees had so much power. And position was because they just knew they were the Michael Jordans of piety. They knew how to outbehave everyone. They did it at a high professional level. But the message of the cross is our only hope is in the mercy of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you some really, really good news today? It is so freeing to confront self-righteousness in your own heart and your own life and to do it often. It would be easy for me as a preacher to come up here and be like, we gotta quit being self-righteous and pound, pound the table and, 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 and point at you guys and act like I've got it figured out and you don't and we just need to be nicer to the world and we all need to kumbaya and be unified. It would, but, 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 but listen to me, I am not preaching at you. I'm preaching at me right now. But here's what I want you to hear my heart. Please hear my heart. It is such a freeing thing to deal with and keep letting God remove more and more of the self-righteousness from your life. And I know on paper it can be scary because you're like, I'm not supposed to like those people and I'm supposed to fight for this cause and I'm not supposed to, and I'm supposed to speak up and listen to me. There's always a time to speak up. I'm not talking so much about what you're saying. I'm talking about our tone as believers because behind other people who don't think like you or act like you or look like you or come from the same country or vote like you or spend their money like you or have morals or ethics like you, behind them is a story. And you have to keep coming back to, they bear the image of God and my heart for them should be onefold. I want them to become sons and daughters of God. I want them to receive the invitation of Jesus. Do you think telling them to just get better and act more like you is gonna ever bring anyone to Jesus or make people excited? Do you think that's gonna put off the aroma of Christ to the world? No, you know what I want people to know? I was lost and he took me in. I was kidnapped by the enemy and he ransomed me. I was completely broken in my own self and he picked me up and he turned me around and he placed my feet on solid ground. I thank God, right? We sang it today. That's not just a fun song to sing to get church started. That's our stories. And we can never forget that the chief currency of the kingdom of God is solely the mercy of God. 
when you are a product of a gift, I will know that you believe that, not because you say it, but by how you treat people. The world will know us by how we treat each other. The world will know Jesus. It is so freeing. Listen, I want us to all be nicer for the good of people that I want to come to Jesus, but can we just be selfish for a minute? I want you to be as free as possible on this side of eternity. And I just don't think self-righteousness in most of us probably gets looked at enough. Or, or, or having a real honest conversation between you and God, like him and Jonah were having, about some of the things in your heart that you wish, God, like, could you just, could you just change my heart? Could you just give me God goggles? Could you help me to start seeing this, this person the way you do, Jesus? I got a whole list of people that I pray for that I don't like very much. And all I ask, keep asking Jesus is, would you please take my heart of stone towards these people and give me your heart of flesh for them? Because I don't really like them. They hurt me. They wronged me. They deeply misunderstood me. They misrepresented me. They abused me in my innocence. But Jesus, I got this one life to live and I can be self-righteous towards them and hoping for their destruction and hoping for their bad. And here's what I've learned about that. Sometimes, guess what? They end up reaping what they've sown and as soon as one of my enemies does, I never feel the gratification or joy I thought I would. You, You know what I'm saying? It's because God's heart's broken when people reap what they sow. God's heart's broken when people are reaping destruction because their actions have been destruction. He's not happy about it. He's not up there going, yeah, that's justice. He's going, this is not what I wanted for you. You're now reaping what you've sown because of some destructive stuff, and this is not what I want for you. God wasn't mad at any of those prisoners in Honduras. He weeped for them. Man, I preached so boldly that day. I wish I had it on film. I don't watch myself back because it's weird. I don't like it. I don't like my voice. It's, it's, you, th- you know, you, know you, you hear your voice on tape or something, and it's just awful. It's just, that's me. Like, I don't, I, I would watch that one back. There was a holy anointed, Holy Spirit-led boldness that I preached to those prisoners. And, and I think the most powerful thing I did was I put the burden on me, the preacher, and put the blessing on them, the prisoner. Because that's what Luke 18 did. And I got to say, yeah, if we're comparing rap sheets, I might have you beat, but it, it's not the point. The point is this, the cross of Jesus Christ came to remove rap sheets. He casts our sea, the Bible says, into the sea of forgetfulness. He throws our sins as far as the east meets the west. The key, though, is it's him that does it. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Look, there's very consequential things that happen in this gap right here. I'm not gonna make light of that. There's big global world things going on, and there's really big things going on in your own personal life. I am not, don't hear me today, or you miss my heart. I don't wanna condescend to the reality of how big some of the things that happen, but you still have to remember so that you can be as free and as whole and as happy as possible. This is, this is the real gap that matters. And the only way you can get out of this gap and over to this gap is, is through Jesus Christ and waking up every day and praying the same thing that that, that made up story Jesus did in Luke 18. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's such a freeing prayer. Sounds like a rough one, doesn't it? I pray every morning, I pray 
I have four pages that I use as a template because some of you are great prayers. I'm ADD and so I need, I need structure. So I have four pages of, of liturgies. Uh, mo- most of it's Bible verses that I pray back to God. Some of it are ancient prayers from very wonderful people that prayed better words than me. So I just use theirs. There's only one of the prayers though in all of my four pages of prayers that I pray. There's only one prayer that I repeat over and over multiple times. And it's simply this, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me today. Every morning, four or five, six times in my, in my prayer time, it's the one thing I repeat, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, please have mercy on me today, a sinner. And it sounds like a tough prayer. It's a beautiful prayer because I know that that mercy is there and I know God loves mercy, right, James? Jesus' half-brother would write it to the church. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus would say it in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. I want that for this church. I want a church that's so free in themselves because they know they're the righteousness of Christ. It is not a righteousness of your own. Paul said it, I quote it all the time because it's fundamental to our faith. We are justified by grace. If you're new to church, please hear me. Grace is free, unmerited favor and love of God. Free, it's a gift, can't earn it, can't deserve it. Free, unmerited favor and love of God. Paul says we are justified by grace through what? Just believing in it. That may sound like an easy deal. No, faith in a free gift that literally justifies you, that can only be a miracle from God. You understand that? And, and I'm gonna offer people who have never received that grace in a, in a spoiler alert in a, in a minute or two here, I'm gonna offer you that. But can I remind us as people who have long taken Jesus up on that offer that I don't believe that that, that, that is a one-time transaction, it, meaning this, I believe you go back to the fact that we are products of a gift over and over and over. And as you do that, you are literally allowing God through his Holy Spirit to change you and soften you and mold you from the inside out. When you know you're a product of mercy and nothing more and nothing less, you start to just naturally be more grateful. You start to see the world through some some more divine lenses and some more holy lenses than you used to because you wake up every day and yes, people are crazy and yes, this world is crazy and sometimes our nation is crazy and people at work are crazy. But when you remember, when you have that accountability of today's a gift, because of the mercy of God, it starts to change your interactions with people and it starts freeing you up to look for mercy, to look to be a radical agent of mercy instead of an angry, lonely agent of judgment and justice. Judgment and justice are an important thing. You'll read about it all throughout the word of God, but hear me on this, it's not your lane. Justice is huge to God. Read all the prophets in the Old Testament. Justice and judgment are inevitable parts of God's sovereign plan. But it's not our lane. Let me just free you up. Our lane is give your neighbor what you got. Jesus said it sums up the whole law. You wanna know your lane, receive the love of God every day. Remind yourself that you are a product of perfected mercy that he showed you on the cross. 
and then go give that to your neighbors. And I gotta believe when you stay in your lane, the fruits of the Spirit start to come alive in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy. That's not a fruit of the Spirit, but let's add it because it's a beautiful thing. Self-control. Self-control. There's this thing in the Old Testament called dross. It's this word that the silversmiths would use in their practice. Every town in the ancient world had silversmiths, right? It was a hugely important and consequential job for them to have people. And this was for them back then, this was a very skilled practice. So silversmiths were very admired in their communities. And one of the things that the the language they'd use in in their work was this word dross. And so every now and then the prophets in the Old Testament would use that term dross because everyone knew what it meant back then, would use the term dross in their prayers. One time a prophet said, God, sweep away the dross from Israel. Proverbs 25, you can go ahead and put it up there. It says this, remove the dross from the silver and the silversmith can actually produce a vessel or let's put it into metaphorically our terms, uh, uh, remove the impurities from a human and God can make a disciple. And here's what dross is. They would get these big, huge pots of boiling water and they would make them, well, it's boiling water, really, really hot. And then they'd take the gold or the silver, or the bronze, whatever it was, and they would put it into the, the pot. And all of a sudden, all kinds of foam would just start rising to the top. And this foam was called dross. And in that foam was all the outer layers of impurity to these metals. And the goal was what? You take these precious stones like gold and silver and bronze, and we wanna make them as pure as possible because that what? That adds value to it. And so what they would do, that's why the, the writer would, would, or the prophet would pray, sweep away the dross God when he was talking about Israel. They would sweep the first layer of dross off. Then they would pull out the metals and they would let them breathe for a little bit. And while they're breathing, they're getting it even hotter. So now the boiling waters can even be a hotter temperature. They would put them back in. Now, the second time around, here's what would happen. Less, less foam would come up. Less dross would come up to sweep away. But here's what they'd say the dross would be way more toxic. Less visible, more toxic. Then they'd pull out the metals, let them breathe. And then one more time, they'd get it even hotter because they're trying now to get to the deepest impurities. They put it in there and very little foam would come up. But now this dross is like deadly in its contents. Very little, hard to see, hard to recognize, which makes it even more deadly. You know, what I, you know what I'm getting at here, right? This is what I think self-righteousness is. It's the last greatest ill of the human heart to be sanctified by God and his grace. And it is so toxic. This is why Jesus had such strong language for the sin of the Pharisees compared to the sins of others. Not because he's ranking sin at all needs to be saved, but because he's simply saying, this is the most subtle yet deadly sin you can have is when you start thinking you're better than anyone else on planet earth. You start thinking you're more worthy of anything else or more entitled of anything else than anyone on planet earth. This globe will sovereignly by God's grace be a product of mercy and mercy alone because of one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ alone. This is why this message, although not the funnest or easiest one or lightest one to talk, it's so important because nothing is more subtle yet more toxic 
than any self-righteousness we still possess. And so this is just kind of a weekend of going back to the cross and saying, Jesus, anything in me that is not of your heart for other people, please take it away from me. Please forgive me. Please wash me white as snow. Please give me your eyes for this world, even for my enemies, even for the people I don't like, because my eyes aren't getting the job done. And I want to walk in the peace, Jesus, and the freedom that you walked in. This is it. This is our salvation. If you don't know Jesus in here, the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians. It says, he, Jesus, who knew no sin, never sinned, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus came and gave us what he deserved and took from us what we deserve. And he does it compelled fully by love for you. You are loved right now. It doesn't matter your rap sheet. It was so fun preaching to those guys in that prison that day and telling them what I just told you. This is what separates Christianity from all other world religions. So much of what religious practice looks like looks the same between Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, all of it. You know what's fundamentally separate and different about Christianity and why we call Christ king and the one way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes is because of righteousness by grace through faith. Every other world religion is a probably, I would say, graciously well-meaning attempt to, to work closer to here on the spectrum, away from here in hopes that if there's a good God up there, he'll let you have some kind of life after death. Just keep working. And, and what a miserable existence to just keep trying because you gotta kind of kick people off and bump people in different countries and different tribes and different religions. You gotta, and Jesus just comes and obliterates it and says, that's such a small gap, run to the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before you endured the cross, scorning and shame. That's what Jesus says. So now I, I end with this. It's the best part for me, at least, because I, I live for this. I remember when someone invited me when I was 23 to know Jesus, and I accepted, and it changed my life forever. It changed my kid's life. I wouldn't have known it at the time because I didn't have kids for a lot of years after that, but I didn't know the trajectory it would change, the, the life it would give my kids. I'm far from a perfect father, but I can't imagine the father I would have been to my kids without knowing Jesus. Just too much bad, bad things put potentially in me. I can't think of the, the, the husband I, I would have, would not have been for my, my sweet wife if it weren't for Jesus. His kindness and his mercy is what holds me accountable on all those fronts and makes me want to do right by the most important people in my life. And I got that invitation and I received it by faith. And if you're in here today and Let's do this out of respect with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you've never received the invitation of salvation for Jesus, I just wanna offer that to you right now. I'm telling you, it's the single greatest decision and most consequential decision you will ever make in your life. And Jesus just gives you the invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. He says, you take my burden, it's light. You take my yoke, it's easy, and I'll take yours. Let's trade out because I can handle yours. You can. And I want you to have mine. Jesus just loves you. And so he says, please come. And I will fill you with streams of living water. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, but also just as importantly, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And if you will confess your sins, he will save you. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be 
saved. If that's in you, it might be one person, it might be 20. I don't know if you're online listening to this on the podcast. Would you just real quickly, would you just raise your hand if you say, I wanna receive that invitation today? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Come over here. Would you just keep that hand up? Just, just you, me, and Jesus knowing that. Thank you. I see that, sir. That's so awesome. I'm telling you, never be the same again. Forest City, for those of you who have long ever made that decision, can we pray for them right now? Jesus, we ask that you would fill these people who by faith have received your invitation. Would you fill them to overflowing with your Holy Spirit? Would you be so kind to them right now? God, I pray that you would confirm in their hearts, like you say through your Holy Spirit, what they've just done. God, bring them beauty and bring them life. Change their hearts right now from the inside out. Thank you, God, that they are being born again. They're crossing over from death to life, God. This is the greatest miracle on planet earth and it just happened today. And we say thank you for that. For the rest of us who have long already made that decision, may we rest this week in our righteousness. May we constantly keep at the forefront of our minds that we are nothing more and nothing less than the products of a gift, the mercy of God. And I end like I love to with the priestly blessing. If you guys will look at me while I pray this over you, because this is not my words. This is God's heart that he told, he told the pastors and priests to pray over the people. May God bless you this week for a city. May he keep you in the grip of his grace. May he cause his face to shine all over every single one of you. May he be radically gracious to each one of you this week. May he turn his countenance towards us and may every single one of you today go out of here with a peace that passes understanding that guards your heart and guards your mind in Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the Lord and today was the word of the Lord. We love you guys. Now go and buy some uniforms for those precious kids. They deserve it, all right? You've been listening to Chad Brugman with the fourth and final part of the series, Jonah, the story of a runaway. Thanks for listening.